0: Welcome to the final ATP podcast from Roland Garros where Novak Djokovic has made history. The 36-year-old Serb has become the first ever male player to win 23 Grand Slam singles titles. He's moved one ahead of Rafael Nadal who has 22 and Djokovic is now just one short of the all-time record of 24 singles titles set by Margaret Court in the early 1970s and in fairness a lot of her titles came before the open era when not everyone travelled to the Australian Championships. So Novak Djokovic is definitely the history man. I'm Chris Bowers, and to review this remarkable achievement with me, I'm joined by the 17-times Grand Slam doubles champion, 12 in men's doubles, 5 in mixed, and half of the legendary Woody's doubles pair, Mark Woodford. Later in the show, we'll be hearing from the twice former finalist Alex Korecha and from Austin Krycek, the ultra-runner, who's not only won his first Grand Slam title by winning the men's doubles with Ivan Dodik, but who now goes to the top of the doubles rankings for the first time. But where else can we start but with Djokovic's third French title and 23rd in total? Whistle in the commentary box on Philippe Chatrier, you can probably hear a few bumps in the background. That's people dismantling the infrastructure for another 50 weeks or so. But, Mark... You commentated on the match for international television. What's your biggest impression about
1: this achievement? Managing his emotions, uh, there was certainly that idea, perhaps coming into the final today, how heavy a toll was the semi final against Alcaraz and arriving to this, to, into the final, the fact that he's trying to create history. Um, for me, that's the, the tiebreak. Uh, between the trio, Federer, Nadal and Djokovic, is the amount of grand slams. And they all deserve to have that tag of greatest of all time. But uh, for me, um, you know, we saw the weight of going for a calendar slam on Novak Djokovic a couple of years ago at the US Open. He arrived, he was in good form, but that particular day, he just didn't strike it. Medvedev In the final. In the final against Medvedev, who elevated his play. Um, but it still burns inside of you. And I think learning from that particular occasion to, to today, because it's history. I mean, he has elevated himself alone, finally. Don't forget, Chris, he was the, the the third person in this group that existed between Roger and Rafa. And he wasn't necessarily welcomed with open arms. Certainly wasn't. so it has been a, a tremendous... Uh, that journey to, to, to now where he's in the clear. Obviously, Rafa's still in the game. Uh, we don't know what will, will happen for him. But to handle those emotions from the very first game where he lost serve, to be able to work his way back in, just this great instinct of trusting himself. He
0: once again in this final, showed the amazing ability to lift his level at the really critical points, uh, as Nadal has done in the past as well. Now, whatever level you play tennis at, whether it's in the public parks or at club or regional level, national level, you know that levels drop when you get to the big points because of the nerves. And it's often the people who win are those who can manage the nerves. Yep. And yet his level got better. Not one mistake in the tie-break. Not one mistake at the sharp end of the second and third sets.
1: Did he lose a serve after that first game? No. I don't think he did. No, he didn't. So, you know, off to a slow start. We often say, you know, you come out with your A game. He probably tried his his A game, but it just, you know, it's the final. It's going for, for 23. And, and look, Casper. Give a lot of credit to the number four seed. He came out and gave himself the best opportunity. He got that early jump on Novak. But you're right, Chris. The fact that you know, Novak just just waited he, he, after losing that first serve. He then played the key points very well. And then when it got to 5-4, 5, four, five all, uh, eventually into the tiebreaker, in particular the tiebreaker, not one mistake. Um, he, he just focuses on those on those big points, and probably I, I I get pleasure out of watching it, like everyone else does. But something that that Todd and I, the the Woodies, when we were number one, you have to appreciate that you're never going to continually break records all the time. Um, for, for us, we you know we were we were going for the the largest the highest amount of of tournament victories and and eventually it was the the slams as well and they're, they're very that they're, you're aware of the legacy and the history making moments but there are times when you force that level you're, there's a target on your back and players will come out teams and in, and in, for novak's case individuals come out and they they can play and you force them to play elevated but if you're number one every match is a cup final for your opponent. Exactly. Exactly. But you know, getting to a tiebreaker, there were times that I s where probably I I can relate with Novak. That uh, Todd and I, we'd say, okay, we've we've clawed our way, we've stayed alive in that first set or second set. Thank goodness we've got to the tiebreaker because you you depend on yourself. You've been in those situations uh, a number of times. And that's why you're probably holding down the number one ranking and creating history-making moments because you've survived those tough moments. Not survived, but you've worked, you've managed your emotions. And I, I, I think he was relieved to actually get to that tiebreaker and just did not make an unforced error.
0: I'm going to use a word that is controversial in some quarters. There's an aura about him. I suppose there's an aura about any world number one. Uh, whether an individual or a doubles team, because you're playing the reputation as well as the, the player or players. What sort of aura has Djokovic got? Because when he walks out on court, there is something about him that seems
1: to intimidate before he's even struck his first ball. I think that that aura can exist in, uh, in the locker room. There, uh, there were times for the for the Woodies. You could sense the that the nemesis for your opponents were the fact that they had not been there in uh, this big occasion previously. They, they were playing uh, the the Woodies, and and without a doubt, you know, for Novak, probably to uh, that idea of improving round by round. Don't forget his his lead up, his build up to this year's final was was rather scratchy um, but he, he arrived he said uh, pre-tournament I'm, I'm here I'm trying to tee, tee up my uh, form my level at Grand Slams these days I'm not carrying any injuries um, and the longer he stayed in the tournament the more dangerous an opponent he became.
0: Were you conscious of an envy will will Novak be envied in the locker room simply because of his success?
1: I sure as hell that they do envy him. They should be they you know the 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 spotlight that this achievement brings on to not just Novak but to our sport i I think is uh is tremendously positive. Um, you could see by some of the sporting greats that came to watch. Uh, Novak and and look even beforehand the script has not been written we don't know that he's going to to, to achieve but you have to be there to witness such a an amazing victory so I hope that uh, I'm sure that he will be uh, receiving many many messages not only from uh, Rafa Roger Federer um, but I, I think there will be just the, over the next few weeks. A lot of congratulations from uh, so what would, players. So
0: what would you say then to the various tennis fans? And we know that there'll be a number like this who will say, yeah, OK, I'll take my hat off to him. He's clearly very special, but oh, I'm still not motivated by him because he does divide opinion,
1: doesn't he? He can. uh, um, uh yeah, look, I, I think there are fans, there is a tremendous following around the world, but I think that um, because of this, I, I, I go back to the, the the mix of his ascension in our game. Our sport was being taken by the bootstraps thanks to Roger Federer and Rafa Nadal, and he came gate-crashing in, and I don't think a lot of fans <laughs> really enjoyed that It's three can be a crowd. Um, and the way that he... Um, The support early on parents were present and um, it was just a little different the way that Rafa ran ran his uh, behind the scenes um, show and different from the way Roger Federer did. But look, I I think we should be celebrating this uh, enormous victory and celebrating Novak's uh, career.
0: Well, the discussion about who's the greatest tennis player of all time can go on in tennis bars and pubs and cafes and wherever you discuss these things, bus stops, whatever, around the world. Uh, we're not going to get into that one now, but I just want to get into Casper Rude. I mean, I thought he played a really good match. In fact, the question that I'm left with at the end of this final is if you were to take away Djokovic and Nadal, I know that's a big if, but is he actually the best clay court player now?
1: You have a look at the record uh, in the last couple of seasons. He's the one that's won the most clay court matches. He's won the most clay court tournaments. Um, uh, He he is a a very handy player, individual. I, I think the nemesis last year... In the final was the fact that he's playing Rafa Nadal and that he's tra- trains at Nadal's academy, and uh, you, you know that that match might have been over and done with before they actually stepped onto the court. There, the aura of Nadal, um, but he, he's learnt from that particular match and the final uh, of the U.S. Open. But in this case, if you if Novak wasn't there uh, here, Nadal, you, you know the Norwegian could be hoisting the trophy.
0: I mean, he's played three Grand Slam finals and he's lost all three, but to Nadal, Alcaraz
1: and Djokovic, two legends and one legend in waiting. My hand is up. I think I'd be taking those, uh, those losses as, as, as much as they burn inside of you. But when you win, you win. When you lose, you learn. And I think he'll continue to learn.
0: He's clearly got a very good team. I mean, he's still coached by his dad. But that seems to be working for him, whereas it might not. We don't know what's happening in, say, the Tsitsipas camp or yep. whatever. We'll come back to Tsitsipas later. But, you know, it doesn't appear to be as harmonious there as it is with the Rood family, who do appear to be all pulling in the same direction.
1: Uh, I, 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 it seems like a very... Um tight unit and you 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 have good people around you I I think that without a doubt uh, that those that have advanced in in our sport you have to have good people around you and uh, you you know we saw today I I felt like I saw a a bit of Rude that he, he understood that he just can't rely upon being so deep behind the baseline and just trying to outlast opponents which works against many a a player, an opponent on this surface. But when you're playing some of the all time greats, you have to have that variation. He threw it in there in that first, well, for, for most of the match, um, a backhand slice I haven't seen that that often I, I think he's understanding and perhaps with in combination working with his his dad that they've made these assessments that he has to just tweak his game and uh, I, I think this is an exciting exciting pass yes it, it, it might be a, a dejected evening tonight but there's so many pluses for Casper moving forward well he's
0: proved a lot of people wrong who felt that last year might have been a the high-water mark by reaching his third Grand Slam final. Uh, so it was the third Roland Garros title for Djokovic. It was the third Roland Garros title for Igor Sviontek in a really interesting final. Uh, I take my hat off to her, but I'm also so excited about the woman she beat, Karolina Mukova.
1: I was super excited to see her in the final and to bounce back from uh, a heavy first, one-sided first set down love three that she just you know, hung in there and she turned the match around and uh, a slender lead early in the third set. The the Czech uh, player development program, I I mean, I'm I'm not sure what they exactly do, but boy, oh boy, they they produce women that uh, have these exquisite games that I I think, uh, you know, can set themselves up, I I think back to Mandela as well as Jana Novotna. We had Barbara Barbara Kuczykova win the title a couple of years ago. These amazing athletic um, styles to playing. It's a joy to watch Mukova.
0: So Djokovic and Sviantek are the two singles champions. The men's doubles champions, Ivan Dodig and Austin Krycek. They came so close last year. They missed three match points in last year's final, but they've won it this year. And Austin Krycek goes to number one in the individual rankings.
1: Uh, what a, a brilliant result. What, you know The combination, winning your first Grand Slam and elevating to, to number one. It, its They're a very difficult team for a lot of opponents, given the left-hand of right-handed combination. You've got the mix of someone who's a little more mature or older age-wise, as in Ivan Dodig, um, and he has that experience. So the blend between Austin and Ivan paying dividends.
0: Well, we'll come back to Austin Krychek as we hear from him later in the show. Women's doubles and the mixed doubles had a bit of redemption about them. The women's doubles champions were Su Wei Xie and Xinhu Wang. Wang who lost 6-love, six 6-love six in the third round of the singles to Iga Shiontek. So that night must have felt pretty bad, but leaves Paris feeling great about getting on the Grand Slam roll of honour. And Mio Kato was disqualified for hitting a ball which struck a ball girl. Whether she hit it in anger is up for discussion, but she was disqualified but won the mixed doubles with Tim Putz, which is a great achievement for both of them. Plenty of other talking points to chew over at the end of the second Grand Slam tournament of the year. You're listening to the ATP
1: Tennis Radio podcast.
0: Okay, so let's turn our attention to the rest of the men's draw here. And I'm delighted to say that Mark Woodford and I have now been joined by the coach, commentator and former player Lucy Arle. The big match of the week was the semi-final between Djokovic and Alcaraz. It was hyped as one of the great matches. Many people thought it should be a final. Obviously, it wasn't because Djokovic was uh, seeded three and the draw didn't play ball on that front. Djokovic won it, but the third and fourth sets were disappointing because Alcaraz was struggling from cramps. Where do you think this is going to last in the, the memory of Roland Garros? Mark?
1: Well, I I mean, it was so much hype, as you say, Uh, once the draw came out, and they were on the same half of the draw. uh, And yes, I think we all were hoping that they would be uh, combatants in a final Uh, wasn't to be but but the standard that they showed I thought was absolutely breathtaking. and I felt after two hours, and exactly at the end of that second set, I, I mean, I think my, my comments were someone's got to take a bit of a dip here. Uh, and it did look like uh, that Djokovic was going to be the first one. And as it turned out, the balloon burst with, with Alcaraz. I thought it was sensational tennis for two sets, but whether it remains in the, the mindset of uh, people for the rest of the year, because I think there's still a lot to be played out, in particular with these two guys.
2: Lucy, your take? Yeah, I mean, as soon as the draw came out, that was where we were all looking and and hoping for it to happen because they've only ever played once, which is incredible because of various different reasons and situations. I think, unfortunately, I mean, as Mark said, it was an unbelievable two sets. And I think Djokovic probably would have said physically, you know, he he was struggling after the two sets and... I certainly didn't expect that to happen to to Alcaraz. So I think we're unfortunately going to probably remember the fact that Alcaraz cramped and maybe forget what happened in the first two sets and also perhaps forget that we should never write off Djokovic.
0: I mean, is there a danger that this is going to be remembered as almost like it was injury decided and and that Djokovic won't quite get the credit for being the 36-year-old who was fitter than the 20-year-old.
1: Well, I think physical fitness is a part of our sport, isn't it? It's it's very much like tactics. Uh, And it certainly felt like that they were trying to take the legs from each other towards the end of that second set because it was such an arm wrestle. It was a bruising encounter. Um, And so I hope that it doesn't detract from Djokovic's performance in that match and I just hope that they don't downplay the fact that you know he won in that manner Um, again the first two sets were sensational and I think when when you are I I, again I use that boxing analogy they were in the ring they were taking heavy cuts at each other there is going to be some damage someone is going to get hurt and it just happened to be Carlos at the time.
0: Do you think the hype actually might have added to Alcaraz's vulnerability towards cramps. I mean, you know a lot about fitness and uh, the relationship between the mind and fitness. And he did say that he was so excited about it. I wonder how much that contributed.
2: Oh, massively. I mean, he, he said he was so nervous going into to the match and you could see an element of that in the first set. And definitely that build-up with, you know, not just the physical side, but the mental side, that was why he cramped and I think we've got to remember this is only his third main draw appearance at Roland Garros. He has so little experience and I think because of the way he plays and what he can do, we forget the age that he's at and if we think back to when Djokovic, Nadal, even Federer, when they were younger... Yeah, they had different things that that were issues, whether it was injuries, Djokovic had the the breathing problem as well. Because of this, you know, tennis is a sport, it's not just physical, it's very mental and that has a a real impact on, on how you perform. So, I mean, I think Djokovic will actually you know, take a lot from the match. I mean, it was on the line. It was the match that we were were looking forward to and probably the majority of the people were edging towards Alcaraz. And I think the fact that Djokovic is obviously, you know, disappointed and feels for Alcaraz that his body broke down, but in some ways that will give him an even bigger boost of confidence.
1: He can beat his chest. (laughs) I survived.
0: But Djokovic himself retired numerous times in early uh, Grand Slams in his career. So, I mean, in a way, it's almost part of the learning process.
1: I think Lucy just said a, a fantastic point, that the fact that he is still very early on in his journey um, and he doesn't have a wealth of experience that Novak does. And if you look at the, the process that Novak goes through, and, and Andy Murray went through that, that uh, the, the similar, uh, and I'm sure Federer does as well, they have their their fluids in, in a bottle, and each bottle is relevant to each set. So the intensity of what they're taking, whether it's electrolytes and other special uh, fluid that they're taking, it, it increases uh, in, in the fifth set. They, if they don't go to five sets, they won't touch that bottle that contains maybe a higher concentrate. So it, there is a, a little bit of science, and I think Djokovic probably takes it to a, a further extreme. And, and look, he, he takes uh, you know great care what he and Jess uh, off the court and during a match. So is there a question that Alcaraz didn't
0: get his science right on this occasion?
2: I think it's it's tough because, again, it's new for him. And I mean, he said he felt more nervous going into this match than he did the final of the US Open. So I think that says a lot. There was such a build-up, such a hype over it. And when something's new it's difficult to prepare for it and it's still all about learning they'll take a lot from this and it's very different i think if you get it wrong just with the physical side it's tough to know how much the mental side comes into it and those nerves actually probably takes more out of your body than than the physical side i mean there's not anything wrong with his fitness but you bring into the fact that, you know, it was such a hyped match. Those nerves, that drains your body far more than than physical side and, does.
1: And a hype before the tournament, all through the clay court season. Uh, I mean, he's only played the three tournaments and, well, I, I think only two tournaments. He, and he was victorious in both of them. Uh, and, and then that suffered that first round loss. But I think that was probably a blessing because he, he, he could prepare, but... All through the season, Chris, it's been about Alcaraz. Is he now supplanting Rafa as the the potential, possible king of clay? And so all of that tension, all of that build up, it, you arrive here. He's the number one seed for the first time. It, it, it can uh, have its effect on you, shouldering that load. So where does this leave Alcaraz? I mean, Mark, you know the locker room.
0: It's a jungle there. Word gets round if a player's got a weakness. Does this count as a weakness or is this a blip?
1: Yeah, I, I think if we see it occur uh, again, then we can maybe, uh, as we probably will jump on, and as players do, they're looking for that weakness. Uh, where is the weakness in the, the Alcaraz game? I mean, he's quite a, a complete player for uh, his age, at, at, at only at 20, Um but for the moment, I think it's just a, a blip. And as Lucy said, I think that his team will take quite a bit of uh, away from that match, do their own research. Uh, and again, the other surfaces that we play on at Slams uh, for the rest of the year, I, I don't think go you, go you don't go through as much um, the, the physical side. Uh, you, you know, the clay court season is six, seven, eight weeks long, uh, and and this tournament comes at the end, you're already spent. I don't think the other slams are, are, are quite the same physical duress that you go through uh, as you do on clay.
0: Lucy, any thoughts as to where Alcaraz is after this fortnight?
2: It's great. I think, you know, he's he's learnt more about himself. He's got experience, which is massive, and that'll still happen for the next few years. I mean, he's not just going to win every single match he plays. I don't think it'll have an effect on, you know, the locker room chat. They all know how special he is. But he's so young. You know, he was qualifying for this event a few years ago. So I think we've got to remember that, keep it in perspective, and also remind ourselves that... You know, the big three, the big four, they've all been through that. But it, it is easy to forget and, and almost put Alcaraz right in the middle of it. But he's, he's got many years to come.
0: Well, before Friday's semi-final, I managed to speak to the twice-runner-up at Roland Garros, Alex Karecha, now a commentator and on-court interviewer, about Alcaraz. And I started by asking Alex about when he first came into contact with the prodigious young star.
3: I see him first at the ATP Finals in London, when he was playing like the little kids tournament. Uh was like in a player's area where we can see the core that they had there and they were, he was playing a match. And I looked at there and I saw the guy hitting the ball so hard and I heard about his name before in Spain, but I never saw him hitting. So I was very impressed by his powerness, by his mobility and that was the first time. So that might be like maybe seven or eight years ago. Oh, six or seven, I don't know. And yes, and I was shocked when I saw him first. And from then on, I followed him. And then at Roland Garros, talking to Juan Carlos Ferrero, when we finished the Legends here one day, he told me, I said, what's next for you? And he said, I'm going to start working with Carlos Alcaraz. And I said, oh, but he's very young. He said, yeah, but I want him really to get him from the bottom, you know, because I want to, let's say, educate him in a good way, tennis way. So I want him to understand the things. So I need to go through satellites, challengers, and we will see what happens. So imagine the the run they had.
0: Have you kept in touch with, not just Carlos and Juan Carlos, but also the Alcaraz family? Because the family are very important in shaping who Carlos is.
3: Uh, Definitely, I mean, family are great. Uh, Well manners, well values, very well-educated people. I know his dad, because we used to play Futures together and he was a a decent player and uh, and then I saw that day that I mentioned before I I saw his dad and I said is your son And he said yes I'm like wow it's impressive you know the way he's playing and yeah I remember him from long time then I met the mom like not that while ago but they're ultra educated you know and very humble people I'm very grateful from what everything is happening.
0: What have they done right that makes Carlos such a lovely guy?
3: Well, they I think they educate him in a way that they feel like he's not like more important than anyone else. I think they are. They all come from a little place where everybody is very humble and. Also, they they let the coaches do their job, you know, and I think this is very important. They don't get into his career. They let the professionals just stick on that. And of course, I think the important thing is like, they tell him every day how important it is to be grateful to to people and to be well-educated.
0: He's such a good player. What's his weakness?
3: Well, he doesn't have many weaknesses. I mean, he's uh, very strong in all areas. He's going to keep on improving. I think he can still improve his serve his stability on the court, like to play like for three or four hours the same way he plays because he's such a creative guy that from time to time it's normal that he still has some downs. But uh, I think he's going to be someone very enjoyable to watch over the years in any surface because, you know, he he's someone that every time he hits a shot he's always trying to do uh, like a winner. So sometimes I think he needs to be a little bit more like practic instead of creative but it's the way he is and he will learn to be creative and practical and, and then he will be very difficult to beat.
0: So in a few years time when you see him being very practical will you miss the creativity?
3: No he won't miss his creativity but I think at some points he will become a little bit more practical because especially on clay best of five at some points it's difficult to do like a, a show every shot you know so it's good also to understand that this is difficult and sometimes it's windy sometimes it's, it's wet and sometimes the ball doesn't go as fast so you need to also understand that maybe you just need to run and he also runs he also suffers he knows how to defend so on clay i think he's going to be huge
0: you've interviewed him in Spanish more than in English. We obviously hear the English interviews. What does he say in Spanish that he doesn't say in English?
3: Well, he's more natural. He's got more vocabulary. He's got, he's got like a more instinct reactions. He's a very friendly kid. He's someone very, uh, with a lot of sense of humor. Uh, like the other day, for example, he jumped on me. And because the first day I interviewed him on court in English, in English, he came to me and we were like for a Spanish Eurosport. So before we started, I said, are you ready? And she said, yeah, yeah, in English, right? And I was like, what? You know, so it did provocate me like a little bit of a confusion. And then we started laughing. And then the day after, when he won, I started the interview in French. And he said, I got it. I got what you said. So I'm going to continue. So I understood. And then he just responded in Spanish. So it was, he's, he's truly amazing.
0: Is he a thinker? I mean, does he, uh, does he develop thought processes? Does, is it, do you get deep things from him?
3: He is, uh, no, well, he, he's, he can explain things very well and he's very mature for his age. But at the same time, you know, uh, he doesn't want to get like ultra deep on his answers because he also knows that he needs to do a lot of interviews, you know. So at the end of the day, it's also like to keep it, uh, let's say, uh, simple. But he, he says nice words and he says things deep, yeah.
0: I know Carlos doesn't like being compared with Rafael Nadal, but if you had the Rafa of 19 or 20 against the Carlos of 19 or 20, who would win?
3: I don't know. That's a tough question now. I need to think about about that. But it will be interesting to know. But uh, it's going to be nearly impossible to find out because they're not going to be in the same area at the top. So it's a shame, but that's what it is.
0: The voice of Alex Korecha. To be fair to Alex, he had to rush off at the end of that interview. Otherwise, I suspect he'd have given me a more in-depth answer to that question about the 20-year-old Rafa versus the Alcaraz of now. So, come on, Lucy, Mark. How would the Rafa of 1920 do
1: against the Alcaraz of now? I'd give the edge to to Rafa. Um... On what basis? Probably because I've seen probably a whole lot more than Alcaraz. Um, you know, I was, you know, commentating a lot, a, a lot of Rafa's matches, and and in particular those finals. I think he was such a a beast, a specimen on, on the court. He, to me, he he hit the ball. I, I mean, the the incredible amount of spin and power, the combination, um, and yet, you, you know, I figure that. I sense now that Alcaraz is probably, uh, potentially, will be a much more complete player, and I think he will maybe move the the needle as far as men's tennis and, and the future. But um, I, I I think at twenty years of age, there's I still see sometimes with Alcaraz he gets uh, overexcited in in matches. In this tournament in particular, it showed up in a set against Taro Daniel. Um, there was. Some loose moments, some games that, that slipped by, um, but he was able to make adjustments. With Rafa at 20, oh, I just didn't see any of those loose games. He was, It was from the beginning of the match until the end. He just, he crushed you physically and mentally. Lucy?
2: Yeah, I think I have to agree with Mark. I think that extra bit of discipline with the way that, that Rafa played, you know, he would closeout sets, closeout matches where I think Alcaraz is still evolving. I think, you know, what he can do with the ball, his excitement about the potential shots that he can maybe produce, he still wants to try them out. And, you know, I think he's a different type of player and, you know, it will take him a few years to, to really learn how to not have those dips. So I think at that age... I think Rafa, with, with his discipline, his focus, he, he would have had the edge. See, I'm begging to differ
0: with you both on this one because, for me, Alcaraz has more game than Rafa had at 19 and 20. I mean, the, the game we know that Rafa has, an awful lot of that has been developed. I mean, we forget how weak his serve was at the, in the early days. He really worked on that. The slice was a lot more floated than it became. He developed a much... Flatter slice, didn't always use it, but uh, I, I just feel there's an awful lot of Nadal's game that came in the course of his career. The one thing that doubts my suggestion that Alcaraz might have beaten Rafa at the same age is that Rafa always had this ability to read what he needed to do to get the best of an opponent. And however... Undercooked he was in terms of practice. Rafa always worked. That's why he won so many matches, that perhaps he should have lost. And that maybe actually, even though Alcaraz has more game, Rafa would have found a
1: way to beat him. Let's go with the surfaces then. Clay? Probably Rafa. Uh, I would say Rafa. Rafa. Hard, definitely
0: Alcaraz. Yeah. This day took Nadal a long time to play on hard.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would go with that. With that. Grass,
0: grass, probably more Rafa?
1: Uh, that, I, I could, I could maybe give. Uh, I, I could see Alcaraz, you know, taking a win on, on the grass, even.
2: Probably that would be the the one surface. I mean, the the difficulty is, players that haven't played on grass very much. It does take a while to learn how to play on that surface.
0: Except Nadal had won a couple of rounds at Wimbledon
2: a couple of years before he
0: played a match at Roland Garros. Right. But I suppose that's Wimbledon as opposed to the whole clay court season. Let's move on from Alcaraz to some of the other names who've impressed us. Uh, Sasha Sverreff got to the semi-finals. sort of redemption after that awful ankle injury a year ago. And yet, I suspect, after he was taken apart by Kasparud, we have to say that he's not quite back to where he was.
1: Well, I'll jump in on that one because I I called a a number of his matches through the tournament and, and I was so impressed with the way that he played. I, I'm not sure that I've always been a as Vera fan be, because of the apathy that sometimes is displayed in matches, the unwillingness to use his weapons. He is a six foot six giant. Uh, he has this tremendous wingspan. His game should translate to all the surfaces. I mean, with the 19 titles under his belt, uh, on all of the tit- uh, on all of the surfaces, I should say. Um, but there's been a reluctance in the past in these big matches to really put himself on the line. This tournament, and whether it's because of the memories of last year, felt like that he just threw everything in in every match. I was so impressed with the level, uh, except for the semifinal. I think maybe I didn't give enough, enough um, attention to the matches that he had played, and and how the, the toll had maybe taken upon him, and he was taken apart by Rude. Perhaps he gave too much, um, too much credit. Too too much. Uh, uh, he was afraid of the the Rude forehand, maybe of the, of the return. But I felt like he just came out and played Rude's game instead of like he did in all the matches in this tournament that I called. He played his game.
2: I mean, I I think. You know, he's done a a brilliant job. I mean, what happened here last year? I think coming back here obviously gave him a, a boost of confidence. It's by far the best tennis that he's played since the injury. And I think he maybe ran out of steam, whether the fact that you know he's playing Kasparu rather than Nadal, he's thinking this is a really big opportunity and a chance. I think we can't underestimate how well Rude started and how he came out and played in the match. And as well, he was carrying an injury. So how much that was a factor as well. But I think he's got to take a lot of positives because there must have been some doubts in terms of whether he would get back to the level. The fact that he was playing some of his best tennis this time last year and it was taken away from him, that must. Quite a big blow, and the whole process of going through the rehab and coming back took longer than expected. So, a brilliant tournament for him.
0: Yeah, and that injury has caused him to pull out of Stuttgart, which is a shame, but uh, he will, I'm sure, be back before the end of the grass court season. What about Holger Rune? That quarter final against Rude was also quite hyped, partly because there were reports of them having clashed in their quarter final here last year, although having heard Rude's side of it, doesn't seem to have been that much. But where has this left
1: Runa? Well, I'm sure, you, you know, the, the the hurt, the pain, the frustration might have been there for 24 hours. But, you know, I, I, I called him a feisty little competitor on the court because he just, he wants to get out there. He's like a, a little terrier with a bone between his uh, jaws. And he just goes about it and just moves his head side to side at the, the opponent. And he, he wants to spit them out um, I, I love it. He's. I love the competitive side. There's this belief that not too many other players are, that I see uh, that are, are coming up, or, and in particular at 20 years of age, have that inner belief that he can actually beat Alcaraz, that he can beat Djokovic, that he can beat Rafa and... Um, you, you know his results this year. Uh, the ascendancy has been relatively swift. You think last year at the beginning of the clay court season, his first main draw match at Monte Carlo, that same day uh, that he was playing qualifying, he just won a challenger. So that's twelve months ago, and here we've uh, we've played Roland Garros, and he was tipped as one of the outside favourites. So I, I think it's just going to continue on. I don't I don't think. It's going to have a negative effect, losing to Rude. In fact, I think it's going to just stir the pot, the fire, light the fire a little more.
0: It's, it's interesting you say that. I don't think anyone would disagree about the feistiness and the confidence, but is it possible that the feistiness and the confidence is slightly covering up for a game that hasn't quite got as much in it as the people he's up against?
2: I'm not sure. I mean, I think he's got a massive game. I mean, he's a physical beast. The way he moves around the court, he's happy at the back of the court, at the front of the court. He's got... Real self confidence and belief, and he'll he'll back himself. There's a fearlessness there, which I think you know it's evident. You've got to have that in the men's game these days. Perhaps that match seven six in the fifth against Serundalo that that burnt him out. There were, were some physical issues there, and he was getting frustrated mentally. He did well to get through that one. I mean, start of last year he was outside the top hundred. So again, going back to Mark's point, it has been quite a big rise and as we all know that trajectory doesn't just go one way so there'll be some bumps there but I for me he's he's right up there player for for now and the future
1: and Chris you mentioned about the whether it, it's covering up for a, a lack of game I actually think there is some game and I, and I'm I will always wave that flag of someone that is looking to come to net. And that's where I think for Alcaraz can ch- move the needle for men's tennis because there's that awareness of where the net is and a, and a like liking to go there. I see that with Rune as well. Um, he, he's brave enough to roll the dice, to go forward. And if he misses, if he loses a couple of points, there's no hesitation about, I'm not going there again. In fact... He'll he'll get there, um, and a backhand slice. I still say that's one of the most underused strokes in in tennis. He has a backhand slice. He will use it, and the serve. Um, I mean, it seems like this tournament it's, it's got more pop on it again. So I, I think he's growing. So you're both going for Runa as a
0: as a positive quarterfinalist. What about Tsitsipas? Quarterfinalist, runner-up here two years ago, having led two love in the final, and yet he was taken apart by Alcaraz, um, certainly the first two sets. Where is he at the end of this tournament?
2: I do think he's not necessarily gone backwards, but uh, I think he's he's stalled somewhat. There there have been the injuries there. There's obviously maybe been some issues within his camp, stopped working with Mark Filipousis, who has been part of his team. So there's a lot going on. And I mean, as we know, it's tough enough on the court without having the distractions off the court. It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next year or so if he can start to get back to where he was. But I I certainly don't view him as as the player he was, certainly when he made the final here.
1: Yeah, I I think this is at a a vital uh, moment, uh, period in his career. I think this is a, a time for assessment. And where he wants to if if he's going to continue on and and be in that short list of contenders for titles um look i, I don't think for wimbledon I, I don't consider him even in probably in the in the top 15 um be, because he doesn't you know transition well hasn't in the past i, I do think it's a a, a bit of a um, shame that he's, he's stepped away from the association with Mark Philippousis. I'd like to believe that, you, you know, Flip was giving him some positive input um, and, and whether that created some turmoil within the camp. I mean, I mean that, you, you know, w- w- whether that's ever uh, uncovered. Um, but I, I think this is a moment for reflection for CityPass for to try and develop a game that he's got to keep moving with the Runes with the, the Roods, with the, the uh, it, uh, ascension of um, Alcaraz to the top of the game as well. And, of course, you're still, you know, Novak's there and, and will uh, await the return of, of Rafa. Um, but but Stefanos is, um, I mean, he, I love his game, but I just feel like he, he's not using it in um, the manner that, you, you know, that would place him up in, in the top five.
0: Anyone else that um, has emerged either positively or negatively from the tournament? I mean, the obvious names are the other two beaten quarter finalists. Hachanov, who's gone semi-semi-quarter in the last three slams, or Etcheverry, who you know, has broken new ground this time, or anyone else for that matter?
2: I mean, they're the two that, that stand out. Etcheverry, as well. He's had a, a really good year and, and shown that he can perform at this highest level. I think he's got a great game. He... Uh, I think can also translate that onto other surfaces. Sarundalo played well that match against against Runa and I mean he's dangerous and not just on clay. I mean semi finals of Miami last year, and you know with massive forehand moves incredibly well can defend can then turn the defense into attack, happy to get forward so he's he's a player that certainly uh, I think will continue to rise.
1: Yeah, a bit of a barren year for French tennis in the men's um, draw. Once again, uh, you know, after a couple of rounds, um, there were no French uh, alive. And, uh, you you know, again, you look back at uh, this event historically, the the excitement that someone has, you know, moved into the second week, even if it's to the early part of the second week. Um, So it's a a bit of a disappointment. I think there's another... Uh, well uh, it's not another federation but another uh grand slam nation i think that will you you know maybe take a, a just a, a good hard look they've got some some decent young players coming up but whether they actually evolve into a uh, uh the, to the likes of a a Lecomte and a Noah and a um a Forger and a Pierlin and etc a Monfils um remains to be seen but yeah, I, I felt that was a, a bit of a disappointing aspect of the tournament.
0: Well, we focused on the singles, but there's also been some doubles tournaments going on, the usual three main draw events, and the American Austin Krychak and his partner Ivan Dodik made it to two Roland Garros finals in a row, this year clinching the title, which they narrowly missed out on last year and they coupled that with an appearance in the Paris Masters final at the end of last year. I put it to Kryjek that there may be something about
4: this city that just works for the pair. Yeah, yeah, it it sure seems that way. Um, You know, I wouldn't have said that a couple of years ago, but I was joking with uh, Yvonne after indoors last year that Paris is now officially my favourite city and and, uh, continues to to deliver, so yeah, I would absolutely say it's... um, my favorite place to play at the moment. And, um, you know, it's just an amazing venue. I mean, all of the Grand Slams are amazing, but um, I really have a good feeling here in Paris. And, and uh, you know, we like to play on clay and it um, and, uh, suits our game well. And, and I think we've been, been playing some good stuff.
0: You do hear players say, oh, I always do well at this tournament or I always do well in this city. I mean, is there something tangible or is it is it just the superstition? Is it the memories? Do you, When you come out of a hotel in Paris, do you sort of say, oh, yeah, this feels good?
4: Yeah, I would say um, a lot of it has to do with the feeling um, that you have. Um, You know, it's one of those things where it's hard to explain until you've kind of done it. Um, It probably doesn't make sense (laughs) thinking about that from the outside. But, yeah, when you feel good somewhere in a city and you've played well somewhere before, it's easier to to replicate it in, in years coming. So. Um, yeah, I mean, for for whatever reason, Paris uh, has a great feel for us. We feel comfortable here. People are super friendly, um, and uh, you know, I don't speak much French, but everyone is, is very accommodating. And, and um, you know, the facilities here are beautiful. So we enjoy our time every every uh, tournament we get to play in Paris, and hopefully, uh, we'll keep coming for many more. So,
0: champions of Monte Carlo this year, good record on clay. How much does the surface? matter in doubles we seem to think of it as mattering more in singles is it more neutralized given that there are more volleys in doubles
4: yes i I would say it it probably has a bit more effect um in singles uh, makes points a bit longer and um you know uh, can play a good bit slower um I think the weather has a good bit to do with it at some of these events. Um, a lot of the time when it's when it's sunny, like the weather's been amazing here in the last two weeks, um, you know, sunny and, and a bit warm every day, it, it makes the courts play a bit faster. Um, but, you know, it does slow it down. You, you do see a, a few more guys staying back um, off of first and second serves um, on the clay and doubles. Um, so it changes it a little bit. I think the movement is probably the the bigger thing that changes um, for for a lot of, especially you know us Americans. We we play on clay when we're younger, on the green clay, but it is significantly different. Um, so sliding on that is not even in the same ballpark as, as over here on the red stuff. So um, you know it is different for for the movement side of things. But I would say it probably has less of an effect in doubles than singles. Yeah.
0: So does learning on North American clay or hard courts benefit playing on red clay or does benefit playing on red clay benefit playing on the hard courts and the North American clay?
4: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would say probably growing up on, on more red clay or playing more events. Um, we, we do try when, when we're younger to, to come over here to Europe some and, and at least get exposed to it because I think it helps you develop your all-around game, playing defense, moving um, and kind of constructing points better. So... I would say it's it's probably a little bit better to grow up playing on Red Clay and it kind of transfers over to the other stuff a little bit better. but you know, I mean everyone has a, a different game style um, and different attributes to them their own personal you know strength and serve and all the things. So a lot of those things matter uh, and it's up to the it's different for the individual. but um if I had to pick, I would say probably better to play on red Clay at a young age than than hardcore. We've talked to you on the ATP
0: podcast in the past about your running, the ultra running. I mean do you still do that can you do that in Paris or when you're at a tournament does that get suspended
4: yeah usually it's, it's a little bit of a pause uh, at tournaments um I do still like to run quite a bit um especially when I'm at home um there was a stretch there where where I was doing a good bit at tournaments as well and, and actually that was uh it's, it's a great way to get familiar with the city so I, uh, a couple summers ago I was I was running a lot during events and it was a cool way to kind of get to know where everything is in, in Paris and and um you know we don't typically do much sightseeing um when we're at tournaments so it was a good way to get out of the room and kind of you know figure out where everything is and see certain things that you wouldn't get a chance to see but um yeah i mean i think you have to be a little bit smart about it especially at these um events for the matches we we, as we've had this week some longer matches you have to be a little bit smarter and and um you know rest and and be as fresh as you can for um for the tennis matches which is what our profession is after all so
0: Seems strange to hear someone like Austin Krychek talking about being fresh for tennis matches, but yeah, we know where he's coming from. You can hear an extended version of that interview, which includes a lot more detail on Krychek's ultra running on the ATP podcast channel this coming Wednesday. Now Lucy, you've done a lot of ultra running in the past. Would you knowing what you know now, would you consider making that a bigger part of your tennis career?
2: Definitely. I learned so much through the the ultra races that I, I did, did a couple of Ironmans as well. And the mental strength that you get from it, I think you also find out a lot about yourself, how much you can actually push yourself physically and obviously mentally. So I wish I'd, I'd found it before I actually stopped playing. I mean, even... know some of the the matches if I play some of the the vets matches I do draw on what I've learned through you know you're doing I've done a 24-hour race you're four in the morning trying to keep going and it it is all about the mental side and I think that's certainly what Austin has has found as well that actually when he goes on on the tennis court that seems easy. You see it's fascinating
0: I'm, I'm Being a bit flippant with Austin when I said, Oh, well, most people want to play tennis so that they don't have to go running, that they, they chase a tennis ball so that the exercise happens by itself. But, Mark, I remember when Jon Tyriak was coaching Guillermo Vilas in the late 70s, at the, the peak of Vilas's career, he actually said to him, No, don't go running. You know, you're not trying to be a runner, you're trying to be a tennis player. Do all your work on the tennis court. Uh, thinking's changed.
1: Evolution of how, how to prepare for, for matches, whether you're a singles player or a doubles player or. or uh, a combination, but it, it, it certainly even through my time of playing, um, there was the focus of doing a lot of drills on the court uh, it, itself, and the, the balance. It wasn't as much off court training, and I think now there are many a player that will probably. Limit their time on the tennis court and, and, and whether it is more time working on their cardio or, or you know, trying to get into the gym just to, to bulk up. But uh, uh, I, I think times have, have changed and, and various ways, avenues of, of actually getting yourself ready, preparing for um, performance on the tennis court.
0: Lucy, is this only for top-level tennis or is
1: there an awful lot of gain that can be
0: got from running and other forms of extreme physical exercise for tennis players lower down the chain?
2: I think so. I mean, as I say, I got so much from it on the mental side. And I know now, speaking to the the different fitness trainers, they don't agree with it. I disagree with them on that because they're maybe looking at the scientific side and and saying, well, you've got to be short, sharp and those bursts, but they're perhaps not taking into the fact how much you get from it mentally. And if you're mentally tough and strong and know that you can go through barriers physically, you know, that is then going to help you on the match court. So it's not necessarily the physical fitness, just improving the physical side. It improves your mental strength, which is key. And Mark, to what extent are today's doubles players different
0: physically because of evolution in fitness regimes than they were when you were playing from the late '80s to 2000,
1: hmm. a, a, a tough question because I, I, I think the the trend now that if you look at the top ten rankings, um, and I think it even, you know, expands out to, to the top twenty, uh, and certainly with the top ten teams, they're primarily double specialists. They're not playing singles at all, which, you know, depending on the the way that you you view it, is that a is that a good thing or a bad thing? But if they're only playing doubles, that means they actually have more time off the court to actually take care of themselves. Um, and the age bracket, um, and all of a sudden we've got this burst of uh, over 35-year-olds that are still uh, being able to uh, play at a high level and contest for these uh, major tournaments, um, uh, I hope that they are keeping themselves in good shape. I mean, one would like to believe that if they're capable of, you know, playing consistently through the season uh, at plus 35 years of age, they've got to be in pretty good shape. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and atptour.com.
0: So, Mark Woodford, Lucy before we go, Wimbledon's almost upon us. Before that, we have tournaments in Stuttgart, boss, London, Queens Club, Halle, Mallorca, and Eastbourne. The past week, we've had the Surbiton Challenger event in England, where a certain Andy Murray has claimed the title. But along the way, he also said to the assembled media that he still feels like a top 10 player on grass. So, the question I have for both of you is when we consider all of the top players playing at the top of their game does andy murray make the top
1: 10 on grass i would say yes um it's not a 100% definite i but i, I yes i would i would put him in that uh, top 10 top top dozen uh the assets part of his game backhand slice he utilizes there is a liking of being up at net, which I still say, even on grass today, uh, it is slower. It's a higher bounce, but it can still take um, spin. And I think with, with Andy's, uh, on top of that, the first serve, he can still swing the, the serve off the court. And there's a, a willingness to actually then, you, you know, come forward and, and hit the volley into the open court. Um, the, the one the one question mark that I have probably for, for Andy uh, on the surface is is now the, the, that the ball, the court plays slower. The discrepancy, the, the speed difference between the first and the second serve. It's never been one of the the strengths in, in his game, that second serve. And I think as the, the ageing process is occurring, um, that second serve on grass is a bit more vulnerable than what it used to be in particular, when it was a very different grass where he could protect that second serve.
0: Lucy, is Murray top ten?
2: I mean, it's a difficult question. I mean, I I think so. I think as well, I know, as we've been talking about, that the grass does play quite a bit differently to uh, previous years. However, I think... You know, if it's a surface that you actually haven't played too much on, it's difficult to really have a whole heap of confidence and belief on it. And I, I think we still we look through the draw of, of the players you know, are at the top of the game and they haven't got a whole load of experience on it. They haven't played loads of tournaments and loads of matches where Murray obviously has. So I think as well as what Mark's talked about in terms of his actual game, I think just the fact that he's confident, has that belief, certainly as a as a Brit, from the word go, we know that that is going to be the biggest part of our season. So we do get more opportunity than, than others to play on it and Within that, it does give you quite a bit of belief that you can actually play on the surface, which I think goes a long way. So I'm going to say yes.
0: I'm going to beg to differ with you again. I, I don't think he is, although I think he probably is for the first round or two because the, the absolute classic feature of Andy Murray of late is that he plays a good first round match but normally takes an age to win it mm. and therefore doesn't have the stamina to continue these days. And I don't think... On grass, The match is a little shorter on grass, but I don't think that's going to make enough of a difference. Therefore, I don't think the surface elevates him close enough to being a top 10 player.
2: So we feel that he will make the quarters and Chris, you're saying that he won't?
0: Yeah, I, I would be very surprised if Murray makes the quarters at Wimbledon. Has he got enough gas in the tank to get to, well, to get through four matches? That's getting to the quarters. I'm not sure he has anymore. Um, the grass court season at tour level is six weeks, the three weeks coming up, two weeks at Wimbledon and then there's Newport, Rhode Island the week after Wimbledon. Anyone you think might actually shine over the next six weeks in a way that we wouldn't normally expect?
2: You know, who's going to be? I mean, I guess we're going to be obviously looking at the lead ups, but the big event is Wimbledon and it's difficult to to then look past Djokovic again, given what he's done here, because there were perhaps a few question marks because of his physical side, but he's shown what he can do at slams. and
1: I, I think it's, it's, it becomes more difficult in today's game to be able to select or, or, or uh, handpick a few players that once they move on to the grass. I think it, it used to be... Um, you could do it with ease previously. That's, that's how I, I felt, that, that you could, you know, even before they, the, the grass season would begin. I think now you, we, it's, we, we hesitate. We want to see maybe how players are transitioning uh, and in particular see the first week. Um, I, I think a player really does have to have a, a lead up to, to go in uh, to Wimbledon fresh. Uh, Without playing a tournament, I don't think it enhances their chances at all. But I think these days it's more of—I'd really like to see the first week of results to to maybe give a uh, okay. I could see them, you, you know, perhaps performing at Wimbledon.
2: I'll maybe throw in Tommy Paul. Tommy Paul, that's an interesting one. Yeah, any reason? Well, just remembering last year, he actually he, he played well at Eastbourne and, and at Wimbledon. I remember his, his coach, Brad Stein, saying that he believes that grass will actually be Tommy's best surface at, at the end of the day. He obviously struggled here. There was maybe expectation on his shoulders. So I think he's going to step up and, and do well on the grass. He's maybe had a little bit longer to, to get on it as well.
0: Well, we'll see how Andy Murray, Novak Djokovic, Tommy Paul and the rest of the ATP Tour do over the next few weeks as the orange dirt makes way for the green, green grass on which the sport was born nearly 150 years ago. My thanks to Lucy Allen, Mark Woodford. I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening. Please check out the extended version of that Austin Krychek interview during the week and we'll be back next Sunday to bring you a preview of the ATP 500 events at the Queen's Club in London and in Halle in Northern Germany. Thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis we